Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's a little bit of a trip um, to be with you uh, for me. Um, one, because I've always been where you've been sitting um, for the last couple months, but um, more so because um, I've been praying for your church for a while. It's been about a year and a half since I started praying for a regeneration. Um, a, a little bit about me. My name is David Escalante. Um, I'm a church planter. Um, I originally grew up in Orange County, but uh, four years ago moved to Santa Rosa, um, California, to be a part of a church plant there. And then um, about a year and a half ago, the Lord uh, called me and my wife to come out and plant a church in Berkeley. And so we've been in the process of laying the groundwork for that. But um, in that time, um, the Lord was just uh, knitting my heart together with regeneration and with um, with Pastor Albert and uh, the body here. And so we've been fellowshipping with you guys, and you guys have been in our prayers for so long um, that it's neat to be able to, to minister with you and to share with you. And um, to, it's a privilege to, um, to be in the Word with you this morning. Um, Pastor Albert's gone, obviously, and um, we're praying for him. He's down um, having some time with his family, as well as uh, working with the Taekwondo ministry um, that he's a part of. And so... Um, this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, and uh, if, you're, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 983. Super important that um, you have your Bible this morning. We're going to be hopping all over the place. Um, so I'm a church planter um, in Berkeley. We've been in Berkeley for about uh, three and a half, three months, three and a half months, somewhere around there. You lose track of time um, real quickly. And uh, we're just real excited for what the Lord's doing there and, uh, and real excited for what the Lord's been doing here through the body at Regeneration. So we've been praying for you guys. If you think about it, pray for us um, as we labor together uh, in the gospel. Um, this morning, we're looking at the book of Colossians and um, looking at a letter that Paul has written to the Colossians um, and as I was studying this and looking into it, it dawned on me, I was considering the passage, what we might go over this morning, and um, what, what the Lord might have for us. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about times and seasons. And as I was considering the seasons, it dawned on me yesterday, as I was looking at this passage, or not yesterday, day before or so, that um, yesterday was the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. You may have had some background or heard of this, but it is the, uh, by far the most important holiday that is celebrated in the Jewish calendar. Uh, the, the Day of Atonement was instituted in Leviticus 16 um, as the Lord instructed Moses in um, how to have that day laid out. And simply what it is, is the Day of Atonement was the one day a year where the high priest was allowed to go into the temple uh, and into the Holy of Holies, where he would uh, make sacrifices before the Lord and atone for the sins of the people for that past year. And this would happen every single year at that time. And in that ceremony, there were, there were two uh, specific, uh, there were two goats that they used in that ceremony. And they would use uh, one goat that was used as uh, the, the sacrifice that was used in um, making atonement for the people. And what would happen would be that the, 
the priest would come and he would lay his hand upon um, the, the head of the goat and the goat would be killed and the b- blood would be spilled of that animal and that animal would be used in the sacrifice. And then there was a secondary goat. This is a really abbreviated version. So like, if you want to read it in depth, Leviticus 16, it's the best thing ever. Um, you should read it. But in the secondary goat, the secondary goat was where we get our term, the scapegoat. What happened then was that the, uh, the high priest would put his hand upon the head of that goat and confess the sins of the people. And then the people, uh, uh, they would watch as the priest set this goat outside of the city walls and it would go off into the wilderness. That goat, uh, it was as if that the sins of the people were sent onto that goat. It was a metaphorical process that the goat might go into the wilderness and never be seen again. And so the people would wait for that to happen, and at the end, when the goat was no more to be seen, visualizing and reminding us that God no longer sees our sins, as the priest would make atonement for them, that they're out of sight and they start fresh and anew for that year. This happened every single year. So they would wait every single year, and as that happened, um, as the goat would wait and go over the horizon and the people were on the walls of the city, they would be waiting and waiting and waiting until they could no longer see the goat. And when it was gone, when the, when the animal that represented their sin was out of the sight of the people, they would rejoice. They would have a great party, a great festival that lasted many days. And it was a, it was a rejoicing in that their sin was covered. However... Um, we know that that had to be done every year. And so um, we pick up this morning in Colossians chapter 2, and Paul is addressing um, not necessarily that day of atonement, but how Christ has made atonement for us. He picks up writing to the church in Colossae. The church of Colossae is in the modern uh, day uh, area of Turkey, if you know where that's at. And this body was located, this church body was located in the Lycus Valley. The Lycus Valley was um, a, a valley there, but it also held three other churches. And so he wrote to these three other churches as well. There was um, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And they were, they were all most likely founded by his colleague, Epaphras. You um, can read about Epaphras in Scripture as well. And he writes this letter to uh, the Colossians and also instructs them to share this with the Laodiceans. But um, the context here that we see him writing from is important. Paul is writing uh, this in a specific location. At this time, he's sitting in a Roman prison cell. He's not comfy. He's not at home. He's not sitting on his couch. You know, he's not in his favorite chair writing a letter, enjoying a latte. Paul is sitting in prison writing this letter to this group of believers. But notice the tone that he takes, because it's not, um, it's not a tone that you would normally think would come from somebody who was in such dire circumstances. The way that Roman prisons worked is that you were either, um, if you were rich, you got to be under house arrest. So you just, you hung out in your house, there were guards, you weren't allowed to leave. It was a pretty good deal. If you were poor, you just were basically, you were in the low, just really grimy, bad prison. But if you were in that prison, it was pretty swift. Like, you were either, everybody on, in that sort of prison was on death row. It was like, you're either going to die or you're going to get out, like, really soon. There wasn't a lot of waiting around. 
And so Paul wasn't in the best of circumstances. His future, in his mind, was not completely secure here. You know, he's sitting in the bad prison, and he could be executed at any day for any reason as a result of this. So he's not really in a great place, but the tone that he writes in is much different than we'd expect to hear from somebody uh, writing as a captive in jail. And uh, let's look at verse 1. He writes out of concern for this people. He says in verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea as, uh, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The, the um, a translation that we heard a little bit earlier also indicated that that word conflict is struggle. That's where the, the word in the original language there is the word agon. It's where we get our word agony. And it's interesting to note that Paul's in a pretty dire situation, but yet his concern is outward. His concern is focused upon those of people he's never even met. His concern is focused upon this group of believers that he has heard of their steadfast faith. He is outward focused. He's struggling. He's laboring in prayer. And I wonder how often it is that we, we do that ourselves. How often that we um, labor in prayer for one another, that we um, struggle and agonize over prayer for other people. It's a tremendous opportunity to minister and to, be, and to bless others, but in that you find that you are so much more blessed. Um, if your prayer life is not very good, start praying for other people. It gets better. If you pray for yourself, it gets really boring. It just, it's really, really bad and because you're kind of like, at least I know when I pray for myself, I spend the whole time kind of like saying like, Lord, this is what I want, and then like almost immediately I'm like, but you know that's not really what I want, and this is like, I want to do your will, but you know that I don't want to do it, and it, I just go back and forth, but when I find that I've focused my attention and my affection upon laboring and agonizing for others in prayer, it turns my heart it turns me and focuses me more upon Christ, and I am more blessed as a result of that. And so Paul is laboring here in this uh, specific area for these people that he's never met. And you know, it's, just a, it's such an important point to, to notice. Um, we're going to start moving through the passage quickly here, but if there's one thing I want you um, to, to understand this morning, prayer is like the most important thing um, we can do. We need it, we're so desperate for it. Um, and our lack of prayer, our failure to pray for each other and to pray for ourselves and to ask the Lord to work in our lives, it totally is exposing. When we're not praying and we're not asking the Lord to work, it really shows what self-sufficiency we have. It really shows that we have it together. We think we have it together. But when we're able to come and confess and say, Lord, I have no clue what we're doing here this morning. I tell my people that um, in our church often, uh, and even in the church that we were at in Santa Rosa, they're like, well, what are we doing you know, later? It's like, I have no clue. Like, we're going to pray. We're going to figure it out because I'm not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, and we've got to figure out what he wants to do. He's the one that has to tell us what to do because I have no clue. We have to come in humility every single time we come to prayer and ask, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want to do this morning? Even before the service, it was so good to sit down with um, some of the staff and pray and ask the Lord, like, Lord, 
I have a, an outline, and I have what I think you want to do, and we have some songs we want to play, but if you don't show up, it's going to be nothing. We need you. It's, it's something that we overlook because we're so used to doing church. We're so used to coming and just being a part of the body here, but we really want the Lord to work in this, um, in this body. Amen? And even the disciples, they, they saw that prayer was closely tied to Jesus' ministry. The one thing that they asked, they didn't, you know, they, Peter didn't say, like, Lord, teach me that trick where, like, you sent me to go get a fish and money came out of the mouth. He didn't say that. He didn't say, like, or you remember, like, when you uh, turned water into wine? That was a pretty good trick, you know? Hospitality ministry, just, like, walking around zapping stuff. That's not what they asked for. They saw, the disciples saw so clearly that Jesus' ministry was tied to prayer. It was tied to his relationship to the Father. And so they asked in Luke, Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's our prayer this morning. Lord, teach us to be a praying people who are dependent upon you. It's okay if we're bad at praying. We just need to keep coming and saying, Lord, I'm bad at praying. We want to pray more. We need more of you. It's, it's uh, less professional than it, than it seems, is the way it should be. Paul goes on in verse 2, look with me. He prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance and understanding to the knowledge and mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So he prays for them a couple things here. The first thing he prays is that they would be encouraged. It means that they would be confirmed or strengthened in their faith. It, he's praying that, that they wouldn't be discouraged because it's easy to get discouraged, right? That's why he's praying for them. Just this week, I've had so many just gnarly prayer requests come in. I'm from Orange County, so like you got to excuse gnarly. I know it's not like commonplace up here. Just this week, I've had so many crazy prayer requests come in with tons of friends and um, sending me things left and right. But in that, my prayer is not so much for their situation. My prayer has not been so much that, um, you know, they would get what they want, but that they would know Jesus more. They would enjoy Jesus more and that they would be encouraged and, and confirmed and strengthened in their faith. Of course, we want the Lord to work in our situations, but those situations are, are put in in our lives, and we experience these hardships and difficulties and trials and tribulations, those things need to make us want more of Jesus, not more of what we want. More of Jesus. And this is what Paul is praying for them. He prays that they would be encouraged or strengthened in their faith. The second thing he prays, that they would be knit together in love. This speaks of unity. He prays that they would have unity as they are knit together in love. Furthermore, he goes on and um, he prays specifically for uh, that they would attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of God, both of the Father and of Christ. What he's praying here is that they would have full assurance. I looked at another translation for this. You will see the phrase kind of come up. Um, It's a more literal translation, but it says the word full like a lot. It's like, come to the full knowledge of the full assurance that they are totally filled with the mindset that they are filled. He really wants them to know that there is nothing lacking, nothing missing. There is full assurance that he's praying for them. And this is not a new thing for Paul to pray. Paul is constantly doing this throughout Scripture. He, he's always returning to the gospel. Look over just um, on the previous page. He says in Colossians 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, 
do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He also goes on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Additionally, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he prays that they would walk worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, so there's this idea of walking worthy and the idea of assurance that he's kind of throwing out here. He wants you to walk worthy. And he, he keeps saying it, walk worthy, walk worthy, walk worthy. And the reason that he's saying that is because he wants them to understand that they have been made worthy of something, not in and of themselves, but to understand their position before God. That's what he's getting at. He wants them to walk worthy. You're only able to walk worthy if you understand and are assured that you are in the position that you think you're in. You know, I was only able to come up here in confidence because multiple people here have talked to me and said, yeah, you're on for like Sunday morning, right? So I was able to walk and come up here and, yeah, I'm in. I'm here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to show up on time. We're going to preach. We're going to talk about Jesus. It's going to be great. Not because I'm a good preacher, but because anytime you talk about Jesus, it's great. I'm only able to do that as a result of someone saying, all right, I'm walking up here in full assurance because peop- I've been told several times that this is what, you know, what we're going to do. And so Paul does this throughout Scripture all the time. In every single book, it's like almost every single time you hear him talking, he's always saying that, walk worthy, or, you know, I'm coming to preach the gospel to you brothers, and reminding them of their position uh, in Christ. And he goes on to tell them what they have. In verse 3, he says, in verse 3, Uh, that in Christ and God, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But Paul here, he's telling them, you have this fullness, you have all of this within Christ, all the fullness in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. He's assuring them that everything that they need is found in Christ. When he says hidden there, that doesn't mean it's actually hidden. It's saying it is contained in. That's what he's communicating. Like, I've hidden that treasure in a box. If I told you that, you would know what exactly was in that. Okay, that's what he's communicating here. It's not hidden in Christ, like, oh, we can't find it. What he's communicating is that this exists in full, in something that you already have. He's trying to bring it to the forefront of their mind again. Why does he pray this? It's sort of like, it's sort of interesting to kind of consider it, but it's the same thing that comes up again and again and again and again in pretty much every letter that Paul writes, and it comes up all the time in the things that we face. There was an attack on the gospel. What he's telling them here, as he's told Timothy and as he's told Titus in the book of Titus, guard the gospel, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Do not let people deceive you. Do not let people try to convince you that something else is true. He's he's presenting an argument and a defense on his behalf here. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. 
At this time, in the Colossian church, there was a Gnostic gospel that was coming along. And basically what the Gnostics were saying at this time was that they were, they were in short, boasting of an understanding that far surpassed uh, what you or I could find in the pages of Scripture. They were, they were saying there's another level. There's wisdom. There's, there's something that you guys aren't getting. There's wisdom in addition to what you already have in Christ. It's Jesus plus this thing. There's different levels. There's different you know, ranks within Christianity. That's what was being preached. And isn't that the case today? We find that in different ways and in different things. It's, oh, you know, it's Jesus, but also you better do this or else you're not in. And you know what I'm talking about because that's been done to you at some point or another. It's like, oh, are you a real Christian? You love Jesus? Okay, well, what about this? What's your stance? What, what do you think? Okay. What Paul is trying to help them understand and know is that it's Jesus, period. Nothing else. No Jesus and. No Jesus and, uh, you know, you need to live this way or you need to, like, figure out how the culture works and fit within that box. It's that Jesus is all. That's what he's trying to communicate. And he communicates it again and again because that's what we're constantly battling. And even if you don't have, like, a, a situation where you feel like people have, you know, have really come to you and said, oh, yeah, it's Jesus plus, you know, this specific instance, you do it to yourself. I do it to myself. Where I'm sitting there, and I start to feel bad or condemned that, like, well, I didn't go and, like, feed the homeless, or I didn't go and, you know, watch the kids for my friends so they could, you know, they can go out on a date. I didn't, you know, we start to do it to ourselves. We start to put ourselves under the burden of the law. We start to put ourselves under these guilt trips. And it's something that we battle. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at a PTA meeting or like some potluck thing for my son's school. He's six. It's like my first one I've ever been to. And um, he's in first grade and he's rad. Um, And I was there and we were sitting at this table and this woman and her son came over and sat down and we got to talking and um, in the conversation, like it, you know, about three quarters of the way through, it came out that um, I was a pastor. And, and then she starts like kind of like breaking down and she's like, oh yeah, you seem like, you know, you seem like you love the Lord and all this stuff. But then she starts, she just starts bawling about like, I've made all these mistakes in my, and like we're in like a cafeteria of like a school with like other parents eating like pizza and like drawing like, you know, on these sheets of paper and stuff. It's crazy. But in that process, she just starts breaking down and bawling. What happened was that she was under attack from the enemy who's telling her, you know, you've made these mistakes in the past. You've participated in this sin. And, you know, you're not really cutting it. And as we began, my wife and I, we began to reaffirm the gospel to her that, do you trust in Jesus? And she's like, yeah, I trust in Jesus. Do you love God? Yeah, I love God. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yeah, when we just began to reaffirm the gospel to her, we didn't tell her anything she hadn't heard already or hadn't accepted already, but we just reminded her again and again as we need to remind each other and ourselves 
that we're accepted before God because of what He has done. We reminded her of the gospel and and the great things that God has done for us. But what happens when we consider the gospel and we think about the gospel is we think the gospel is about what we need to do for God. But it's not the truth. And the world thinks that's what it means. You talk to anybody on the street and it's like, well, what's keeping you from, you know, having a relationship with God? Oh, I just don't want to keep those rules and do all these things. It's like, Okay, well, first you need to understand that the gospel is about what God has done for us, not about what we have done for God. We can't do anything, and that's the hard part about the gospel because we feel helpless. It makes, no, it, it, makes it hard for us to say, I participated in this or I earned my way. We don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable because we like to have power. But the gospel drives us to a place of total humility and dependence upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross. We cannot do anything. We cannot add to it. We cannot participate in it except for to place our faith in Christ and trust in Him for salvation. It's, it's one of the most amazing things, but it makes you feel helpless at the same time because we want to do something. We want to have our own way and be a part of it. He goes on uh, to, to communicate this to them and addressing these issues with these people. Um, he, he goes on in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he's thankful for their steadfast faith. He rejoices and encourages them um, for that. And we need to be encouraging each other in the faith, and that brings us back to reaffirming the gospel. That, like, I'm thankful that you're continuing. Some of the things that we don't really consider is, like, I'll say this, not because it doesn't register with you, but... I know for me, when, when someone says it more practically, it works. Here's what I do. I'm gonna give, I'll just tell you what, how this works for me. I affirm this for other people through my phone, text messaging. It's like the best thing in the world. People that I don't talk to often, but people that I'm praying for, I will just text them like, hey, thankful that you're continuing in the Lord. So, so thankful for you, praying for you. Keep on, we're in the battle together. Boom, it's out. It's, it's just a practical way to do that because it's weird. It's like, well, how do we go around encouraging each other? It's like, you know, you ha- in your mind immediately, you're like, you think like, all right, let's go to the front row of the church and sit down and like, excuse me, brother. Thou has been doing a great job. You know, it's like, no. Okay, send a text message to your friends. Send an email to someone just like, hey, thinking about you, praying for you, thankful for you. The Lord's doing good works in your life even though you don't see it because we... We don't see that in our own lives, and we lie to ourselves, and the enemy lies to us, and we're deceived, and we become discouraged. Send a text message to your friend when you go to church. Tell them you're thankful for them. People you don't talk to often, it's the best. Keep in touch. Encourage people in Christ. So, hopefully that made sense to you. I just like the practical side of it. It's, it's way better. He goes on to encourage them in that. You know, And we're told to bear each other's uh, burdens, of course, in, in the book of Galatians. And then he comes to um, this point of reminding them in verse 6 and 7. What he's doing here is he's bringing them back to the gospel. Paul understands that if they realize the greatness of Jesus, this Gnostic gospel that Jesus plus anything will be totally uh, destroyed with them. They won't have to deal with it. He reminds them, of course, that all wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ and Christ alone. And, and even Jesus confessed this himself in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
he goes on in verse 6 and 7 here of Colossians 2. Look with me. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So he does a couple things here. He reminds them of the simplicity of the gospel. The first thing that he does is he says, as you therefore have received Christ, he reminds them of the way in which they received him, in simplicity, in placing their faith in the finished work of Christ. He's making them remember that initial way. He points them to the source of that. He then says, as you have received him, in that simplicity, walk in him, or so continue to live as you have received him. Don't add anything in the same way that you trusted in Christ for your salvation. So continue to live that way. Don't add anything. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. And then he uses two metaphors to communicate uh, this to this uh, culture. And in that culture, these things would have spoken more loudly than they do today. But he uses an agrarian term um, or, or something that's pertaining to agriculture. And then he uses a, an architectural term in this instance. He says two things. He says that they would be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So if you would turn with me quickly to... First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul is like all about saying the same thing a whole bunch of times in a whole bunch of different places, and it's important because like it's the only good thing worth saying that Christ and Christ alone is all we need. He's really uh, outstanding at it. So he picks up in verse 6 here, communicating to the Corinthian church, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So he's using this agricultural term again of of planting and watering and sowing, and then he comes in here in the same sense to use this architectural term as well. He says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So he leaves off with this. Let each one take heed. Remember, pay attention, take heed how you build. He's saying the Lord has prepared it and has allowed you to build on this and to build others up and to encourage and exhort. But pay attention how you build on it. And what he's referring to is the foundation on which you build. In the next verse, he continues in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He communicates the same thing that he's communicating here in these, in these two terms of agricultural uh, and, and architectural, that you need to be connected to a source that is Christ. Remember in John 15, what what Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's speaking very specifically about being connected and drawing life and source from the root of the vine. Having that, you cannot be connected to something else. Again and again and again throughout Scripture that we see that Jesus is the foundation, Jesus is the vine. And that's what Paul's drawing on here in 1 Corinthians. He says his point is that the source is Christ and Christ alone. And then he goes on to communicate back in Colossians that they should be established. And what he's speaking of here, 
uh, is what we looked at earlier in Colossians 1.10, where he says uh, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, being fruitful, because that fruitfulness is a mark of maturity and growth in the believer. He's praying that they would be established and that they would bear fruit. They would increase in the knowledge of God. And that, in turn, as he finishes off in verse 7 of Colossians 2, that they would abound or have life and that it would be with thanksgiving, remembering. Because when you are rooted in that source, your response is thanksgiving. Because you remember that you cannot do anything. You need Christ more than you ever know. And he has freely made himself available to you and has saved you. And in turn, your response should be thanksgiving. And that is what it indeed produces. Quickly, let's move to verse 8. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Paul's ready to deal specifically with the issues that were happening in the Colossian church. And he, he makes a couple different points here. First, that Christ is greater than philosophy and empty deceit. And secondly, that Christ is greater than traditions and the law of men. The first thing that he makes note of there is that we should not be cheated through philosophy. Now, philosophy means, uh, basically, it's the love of wisdom. Many good things have come from philosophy. And in this case, what he's pointed out is that you should not love... It's kind of like a twofold thing here. What he's pointing out is that you should not have this love of philosophy more than you love Jesus. Jesus is the one who, in him, is knowledge. In him is wisdom. That's why in James it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach. Jesus is for giving you wisdom, but you have to come and get it from him. He wants to give you discernment and understanding to deal with the things in life, but he is the source of that. Additionally, what this is speaking of more specifically in this context is that the philosophy was kind of like a broad term uh, or for a specific problem. Paul, there, there, there was a, an issue in the church that was known, and you know, he could say, don't be dis- persuaded by this philosophy. He didn't have to really describe it out to him. So he's trying to get at something very specific here. He warns of philosophy and empty deceit, and that refers to uh, the, the values and those people who are trying to draw away by advertising, like, these secret truths of, like, you know, different rankings within uh, Christianity. And the truth is, you know, it's like we're all sinners. We're all on the same level. You, I, every single person, we're bankrupt. We need Jesus. He's the only one that can save us. They were advertising something other than that. You know, it's like, if you, if you put extra money in the money box, you get to be, like, level three. You know, like it was some video game or something. And that's really kind of like what was communicated by this group of people. And that's what you'll get when you talk to people occasionally. It's like, you know, that that will kind of keep coming up in its own sort of way. The second thing that Paul addresses here, that Christ is greater than the traditions of men. The traditions of men here are, are meant to refer to religious teachings that have been invented by men, but they don't have any foundation in the Scripture. Again, he's referencing the Gnostic gospel that's being uh, communicated here in this specific church, and also he's dealing with 
that legalism and law. Later in chapter 2, he gets into that more specifically in dealing with uh, living out legalism. I encourage you to read into that when you have your own time. And then the last thing that he says here is that Christ is greater than the basic principles of the world. The basic principles of the world there um, most likely refers to principalities and powers. It's the same thing that uh, we come across um, in the book of Ephesians when it talks about putting on the armor of God. And there's principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. That's speaking of uh, demonic and activity and, and force, that force that opposes men and women. That's what the basic principles of the world are referring to um, in here as well. So we're, we're, we're being deceived by philosophy and empty deceit, traditions of men and people adding things to the gospel, and additionally by the enemy coming in and drawing us away. But look at his response here. He says in uh, verse 8 and 9, the last half of 8, he says that these things, are they're according to the basic principles of the world, but they're not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This teaching stood opposed to Christ. And when he reminds them again, he's pointing them back to say, look to Jesus. These things are not according to Christ because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We can't ever say that we need, in a very like metaphorical way, like I need, I need to be filled up with more of Jesus. Because we have the fullness of Christ. We have everything that, we've, that we would ever need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. We can need more of Jesus, and we want more of Jesus, and to know him more intimately and to draw nearer to him. But it's not like he's holding us hostage, like, well, when you learn to master that, then I will, and you're responsible, then I'm going to give you a little bit more of me. And you're, you're going to learn a little bit more. We have the fullness of Christ already, and Paul reminds us of that um, here. He says that in Christ dwells the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. And then in verse 12, he goes on to communicate that we are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. We're complete in Christ. We don't need to add on to the work of Christ. It's super exhausting to try to do that. One of the most freeing things is when you realize you can't do anything, you can't add on, you can't accomplish anything else, and you just learn to like relax and just sit there and enjoy Jesus. Because that's what it's about. He came to die on the cross for our sins, to reconcile us to himself, that we might know him. Not know about him, know him. There's a huge difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing him. It's great to read like, you know, devotionals and hear other people's, you know, sermons and theology books and things like that. But Jesus wants to know you. And we need to know him, not know about him. And that requires time and intimacy and getting close to him. And he has made that possible through the work of the cross. Because remember how we started out? We started, we started looking at the Day of Atonement. The priest was only allowed to come into uh, the temple once a year. 
And the entire law was designed in a way, or, or when, I, when I reference the law, I'm, I'm saying the Ten Commandments and thereof. It was designed to keep man away from God. You remember when the entire nation of Israel was at the base of the, the mountain of Sinai and God was on the mountain? They were given specific instructions, do not come close, do not touch the mountain, you will die. Do not come near me. The temple was designed in that same way where they would have a mediator, the priest, who was once a year allowed to come into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices before God for the people. So it was designed so the people could not come near to God. If you come in there and you're not holy, if you're not pure before God, you're dead. But what Christ has done is he's made it so that we may come to God. He was that sacrifice. He was that lamb. He came and was slain before God and was presented on our behalf so that we might come to God freely. Not so that we might be kept from God. He has made a way for us to have that intimacy with him. And so it's about knowing and enjoying and loving Jesus and letting things flow out of that. Lastly, look with me at the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Paul is dealing with a, or not Paul, I always do that. It's not Paul. We don't know who the writer of the Hebrews is. People think it's Paul. And I'm not sure if I think it's actually Paul. But I won't get into that now. Um, The writer of the Hebrews, he indicates here something very similar in dealing with this. The Hebrews were dealing with the same thing. They were facing persecution and were tempted to be drawn away back into that old lifestyle. And he does the same thing here, communicating what he's done to the Colossians in a much more vivid way because these were the people that were seeing these sacrifices um, in front of them. Uh, Look with me at chapter 9, verse 23, and then we'll roll into 10. He says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Look at verse 24. He says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And then he rolls into chapter 10. He says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image, image of things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That sacrificial system was to remind them every year you are not pure. 
that you need salvation, that you need a Savior. It was to point to the greater sacrifice, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who would offer himself once and for all before God so that we would not continue to do this. He goes on in verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away the sins. In verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you had no pleasure. But then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Um, Skip down with me to verse 11. He says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is my covenant I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their mind, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. I love, love, love verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God forever. He is sitting, Christ is sitting in the heavenlies with God because there's no more work to be done. He's done. It's finished, it's complete, and we have the fullness of that. This is what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to communicate, and this is what you and I need to be reminded of every single day because we are prone to make our own way. We are prone to criticize and be, uh, you know, and to attack one another, to hold one another at arm's length because you're not doing it the way that we want. And what Jesus wants is for us to know him and him alone. That's it. Love Jesus, enjoy Jesus, have that relationship intimately with Jesus. It's, it's the thing that he came for, Okay? Understand that he has come that we might know him, and he has become that great high priest. If you look at the book of Revelation, when you read it, in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple there. We don't need a temple because we don't need a mediator to get to God anymore. We don't need to offer sacrifices. It's purposefully left out. And every city plan that God has made it's always had that temple so that man could come and meet with God. But it's left out because we don't need it. We don't need to have a temple. We don't need to have sacrifices being offered because Christ has been sacrificed for us already. He's done the work. He's completed it. And in him, we are complete. We need more of him. I pray that we would make that our prayer. And so what we're going to do, and, and what we should do every time that we come in here, and every time that we hear the word, is we are going to respond together to the gospel. Because every time you encounter the gospel, you either sit there and you ignore it a little bit more, or you respond in thanksgiving, as Paul pointed out. We're going to do that in a couple different ways. The first way that we're going to do it is in song. This is a time for us to rejoice together. 
It's a time for us to lift our voices before God, not because we sound good, but because we can't help but singing His praise because of what He has done. And so when we sing, let's sing loud and worship the Lord. Let's raise our hands. Let's, let's have those sacrifices of praise before Him. Additionally, what we're going to do, we're going to have the offering boxes are in the back. And if you've been here before, um, you know what to do. There's the, they're on both sides. And it's an opportunity for you to give of your own financial provision to the Lord because Christ has given himself for you. We don't give because God needs our money. We give because we want to be generous as, as God was generous in that he sent his own son into this world. It's a model. It it's, brings us to a reminder that, like, Lord, I want to be generous because you gave. I want to give. I want to facilitate more people meeting Jesus through that work. And so those offering boxes are in the back, and you can, um, you can use those at uh, your own discretion. And then lastly, we're going to take of communion together. And it, it's, a, it's a communal event. That's why it's called communion. It's togetherness. Communion is on the sides, the, the elements are on the sides and in the front here. And it's an opportunity for us to do just this, to remember what we talked about this morning, that Christ's body was broken for us. As he was at the Last Supper there with his disciples, he held up the, the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and, and held that up and said, this is my blood that was shed for you. He totally deviated from that because that was originally meant to be, it's a very scripted ceremony, but Christ flipped it and said, this is what I have done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we do this together, this is a time for us to respond and to rejoice, to worship together because of not what we need to do, but because of what Christ has done. So I invite you to do those things uh, this morning. The elements are on the side and Um, You can uh, take them uh, as you wish. Pray with me. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you used the Apostle Paul to write and affirm the gospel to us. Lord, some of us just need to hear it this morning, that you love us, that we're accepted in your sight, that we have uh, that ability to have an intimate relationship with you. Lord, we're so thankful Lord, and together we confess that you are Lord, that you are King, and that you are the head of this church. And as you are the head of this church, Lord, we want to know what you're doing. We want to have an intimacy with you. And so we pray that you would would minister to us, Lord, as we take communion, that you would remind us of your love for us. As we give, Lord, that we would give generously as you have given to us. As we sing in song, Lord, that we would lift our voices loud, that you might be glorified. That we would raise our hands and that you you would be magnified above all other things. Lord, we love Jesus. We're thankful for Jesus. And we want to be uh, just glorifying Jesus in everything that we do, everything that we say. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. We pray that you would, you would be exalted this morning. Lord, we're desperate for you. We need you. Lord, we don't want to pretend that we have it together. Lord, we need you so desperately. Lord, we're thankful that you're faithful to fill that need and that you have been faithful, Lord, to the death on the cross and that you have been raised from the dead. And we love you so much, Lord, and we look forward to this time that we have to respond, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit ministers to us and draws us to you. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.